and Holy Spirit. Now, it has been necessarily dense and full. Although, just because it is necessarily dense and full does not mean it is not immensely practical. I was uh, reminded as I came across um, a book this week, and it uh, reflected on what Jesus taught his disciples the night before he died. And they were about to face the world full of tribulation, full of trials, temptation. They were about to be scattered. And he didn't, he didn't give them a lesson on mental resilience, did he? He didn't give them a lesson on discipleship strategy. No, he didn't give them a lesson on just how to make it and find that life hack. No, what did he do? As he thought, how can I best prepare my people to live in the world? What did he do? He taught his disciples about the Trinity. John 14 to 17, the upper room uh, discourse, he's there and he teaches his people about God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. So there's nothing more important that we could be doing than to know our God. But I think we'll agree, God is mind-blowing. Uh, we're given so much in the scriptures, and so we will need his help, and I will need his help as I seek to open and explain these. So let's begin by praying and asking uh, for our God to help us. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, you are so far above our thoughts and understanding. If you did not reveal yourself to us, we can never know you. So we do ask for your help today to help us uh, to... Uh, make sense of the words that you've given to us in scripture but most importantly that we might know you the one true God and enjoy growing in our relationship with you amen now do you remember when you learned to ride a bike do you do you remember or perhaps more recently you have taught somebody to ride a bike I remember my parents took me out into the car park near where we lived when I was very young. Uh, we had a bike. My first bike was blue. It was BMX. had a number seven on it. Uh, but my mum and dad, as they were teaching me how to ride a bike, would, would sit me on and they'd taken the training wheels off and they'd be there guiding me and I'd be there holding onto the handlebars and giving a bit of a wobble. But there were mum and dad, um, one at a time, I think, not both together. That would be a bit intense. But they're just to to help stabilise me, to, to kind of give me a push, get me going, hold my handlebars straight, give me encouragement, keep pedalling, keep pedalling, keep pedalling. And most recently, I've had the privilege of helping my boys. And again, I do the same thing. I'll hold their arms, help them to balance, give them encouragement, set them in the direction they should go, and encourage them. Now, why are we starting to think about riding a bike? Something that probably all of us, if not most of us, have done. Well, Encouraging, helping someone to ride a bike is a bit like how the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. He's alongside us. He guides us. He leads us. He motivates us. He gets us going and he points us to the end. That's true of the Christian life. And of course it's true of the Spirit's work when we pray. Because the Holy Spirit is an active powerful helper. It's who he is. The Holy Spirit is active, powerful, helps us. And of course, as we come to our first point, we'll see 
Throughout the scripture, the Holy Spirit, we find out, is powerfully active in God's plan. If you've got an outline, you're given one as you came in, you'll help, uh, that, will, that will help you follow where we are in the talk. It's also got lots of Bible verses on. We're going to be going through quickly, but you can go through later and check those out uh, for yourself. And you might like to follow on and make notes and also and make notes to ask questions later. But the first thing we need to see is that God the Spirit is powerfully active in all God's plan. And we find this out on the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the Spirit here is pictured hovering over the waters like a bird over her nest. I've just come back from a lovely few days in the Blue Mountains, and if you've ever been there, you can imagine the cliffs, and the birds will be up there taking their sticks, they're, uh, they're setting their nest, and we can imagine the bird hovering over the nest that she's just built, about to lay her eggs, and hovering over what is to become her brood, her chicks. Well, in the same way, that's what the Spirit is doing, hovering over the water. He is about to bring forth creation. The Spirit powerfully brings forth God's creation. And we get the same idea in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. And here in Hebrew, the word for breath can mean wind or spirit. So the heavens, the stars, all creations made by the word of God, made by the spirit of God. The spirit is powerfully active in God's work of creation. And also powerfully active in God's work of recreation. So we had in our reading from Leone uh, in Ezekiel a promise that God made to give life. There in our passage in Ezekiel, God promised his prophet that though Israel by that time had been carried off to Babylon in exile, their hope was as good as dead. They themselves were saying, oh, we're like bones, we're like dried up bones, we have no life, our hope is gone, and our hope in God's promises are God, are gone. And yet what God does is give Ezekiel and us an incredible visual aid. He takes Ezekiel to a valley full of dry bones, and he says, prophesy, prophesy over these bones. And as Ezekiel prophesies and God's word goes out over this valley of dry bones, sinews start to grow. Muscle starts to grow. Flesh grows and breath enters. And what was once a pile of bones becomes an army, a, a standing, living army. What a visual aid that is. But this is God's point at the end. And it comes at the end of our reading, uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 13. It's on the screen. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So what does God do? What does God do by his spirit? God recreates. How does he do it? Do it by putting his breath, by putting his spirit in the bones. I will put my spirit within you, he says. 
So we've seen already that the Spirit of God is powerfully at work in creation and powerfully at work in recreation. For the Spirit is powerfully at work in all the work of God. In fact, we can say that no plan of God is executed without the Spirit. All God's powerful work is carried out by God the Holy Spirit. Well, one more more place to go. What about the most powerful work of God? What about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, here, even here, we see the Spirit's work. Romans 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It's an incredible verse. There's so much in there that we can unpack. But here's the point. The Spirit, powerfully at work in all God's work of creation, recreation, giving life. For the Holy Spirit executes, the Holy Spirit enables, the Holy Spirit activates and energizes, if you like, all the work of God. That's our first point to see. We've come to know God, the Holy Spirit. Who is he? A powerful, active agent and helper in every plan of God. Secondly, we need to see that the Holy Spirit is a powerfully active divine person. And we need to know this because some have thought of the Holy Spirit a bit bit like an impersonal sort of cosmic life force, some sort of universal energy. And although we've seen that the Holy Spirit is, of course, powerful in all creation, in all the universe... It is important for us, as we'll see later, that we see that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal life force, but no, thoroughly personal. The Spirit is a personal, a he, not an it. And when we say he, we say that not because he's male, God is not gendered, but we say he because the Spirit is personal, a very important point. We see this in Ephesians 30, for the Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamour be put away from you. So we see that the Spirit can be grieved. You can't grieve an it, can you? But you can grieve the Spirit, because the Spirit is a person, personal. And how do we grieve the Spirit? By sinning, by offending against God. By bitterness, anger, wrath, these things offend God, they offend the Spirit, for the Spirit is personal. Second, we see the Spirit is personal, for he speaks. Hebrews chapter 3, we find out, uh, the writer says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit says, he speaks. And the tense here is present. The Holy Spirit is speaking now. Now, here is actually a quote from Psalm 95. In Hebrews chapter 3. And the writer makes the point that what the Holy Spirit said then, in Psalm 95, those hundreds of years ago, he is saying now through the words of Scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke and speaks. So, a very important point. If we want to know what the Holy Spirit is saying, if we want to listen to what God is saying, we open our Bibles, for that is how God speaks to us today through his Spirit, for the Spirit is personal. God, the Spirit, speaks. Third, the Spirit acts. Things don't act, but people and persons do. Matthew 12, 
These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Here, of course, is Jesus speaking about uh, an exorcism, a, a demon being driven out that he's just done. And the people there are wondering, how did Jesus do that? And Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Sorry to take these words out of context, but we see the point that Jesus is saying. Jesus is actually making the point that the work of God is undivided, something that we've been saying throughout this little series. God's work is undivided because there is only one God. Here, the work of God is overthrowing evil. But how does God overthrow evil? Well, first of all, how does the Father do it? The Father sends the Son. How does the Son do it? He rules over evil, but how does he rule? He achieves his work by the Spirit. It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Do we see the work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, undivided? But how is it executed by the power of the Spirit. For the Spirit is a person, but doesn't act independently, but in Trinity. Fourth and finally, the Spirit as personal intercedes. Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit intercedes for us. I don't think we've got a verse for us. Uh, we'll come to this later. But we see that the Spirit is powerfully active. He speaks for us. He intercedes on our behalf because he's God and does that for us, his people. So the Spirit is powerful, the Spirit is personal, and as a powerful person who's God, he acts powerfully and personally for God's people. That's our third point. And we see that the Christian life, from start to finish, is a work of God, the Spirit. Firstly, to give new life and justify. A passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what he does. He regenerates us and gives us new life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know, says Paul, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the sins that Paul lists here are not exhaustive. If you've ever read this passage, you'll notice that he doesn't name every single sin. But what is the point? It's to cover a whole range of sins. And the point is that all of us have sinned in a whole range of ways. We are all there. All of us fall short of God's holiness because of our sin. All of us on our own would not inherit the kingdom of God. But this is what the Spirit does to all of us. For all of us, whatever our background, the Spirit washes. You were washed. The Spirit sanctifies, makes clean. I've cleaned my car recently, uh, threw the soapy water on it, and the muck just streamed off. That's what the Spirit does 
to you and to me when we come to Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Our sins washed, whatever we've done, our histories, our pasts, we are new, for the Spirit creates and recreates and gives life and gives new life. We were washed, we were sanctified by the Spirit. The Spirit has sanctified us, made us to be a people belonging to God. Second, what does the Spirit do? He, having washed us, he transforms us. God is not done with us yet. Wonderfully, one of my favourite verses, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hear what Paul says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit transforms, and this word is where we get the word metamorphose from. It's like when a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. You and I are being changed to be more like Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. Do you hope that you would be more godly? Do you hate your sin? Well, if you do, be encouraged that the Spirit's work is acting on your prayer to make you repent of your sin and grow you to be more like Jesus. Third, the Spirit's work, powerfully active in the life of God's people, is to lead the Spirit leads us. Romans eight fourteen. We are to be a people led by the Spirit. Having given us life and changing us, the Spirit goes before us and shows us the way that we're to go. And fourthly, the Spirit secures us for and on the last day. For God has put his seal in us. And what is that seal? The Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Act as a guarantee. A guarantee that we'll be safe, secure, saved. On the last day. So we've seen already in our whistle stop tour, are you hanging on to your seats, there's been a lot to cover so far. Who is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is powerfully at work in all God does. He creates, He recreates. Who is the Spirit? He is personal. That means God cares. The Spirit cares. The Spirit who is powerful. Cares. And how does she, he show his care? He shows his care by working in us. And so bringing these three together, a powerful spirit who is personal, who cares about you, this brings us to understand how the spirit helps us in our prayers. And it's our fourth point. The Holy Spirit is powerfully active in our prayers. And we see this in the first way, Romans 8, verse 15, he causes us to pray to the Father. He causes us to pray to the Father. Verse 15, Paul writes, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Remember, any work of God happens by the Spirit. That is to say, if we pray, it's because the Spirit helps us to pray. It is by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. Because of the Spirit, we pray. That is, if you want to pray, the Spirit is at work in you. Have you ever wanted to pray? That's a work of the Spirit. Have you ever prayed? That's a work of the Spirit. If you pray to the God, the Father, the Spirit is at work in you. Now, I remember being um, quite a young Christian, and I wanted, I wanted an experience of the Spirit in my life. 
It's something that every Christian should want, actually. If we don't want an experience of the Spirit, we've got to wonder what kind of relationship we have. But I was thinking, as I wanted an experience of the Spirit in my life, that I could do something extraordinary, something supernatural. Now, I wasn't quite thinking flying, but something that would make me feel amazing. And to be sure, the Spirit can give those feelings and can do wonderful, extraordinary things, and does. But what is a powerful work of the Spirit in us? He causes us to pray. Something that we might think is so pedestrian. And yet, if we do, we probably need to change our thinking, don't we? But what could be more incredible than to have direct access to the God of the universe, who is in control of everything, and can order things according to his will for our good. That is a powerful, extraordinary experience as God the Spirit works in us for our good. Second, how does the Spirit help us? He helps us pray when we're weak. Because although the Spirit causes us and helps us to pray, nevertheless, it's hard If you try to pray early in the morning when you're tired or late at night when you're tired or during the day when you're tired or or distracted or grieving or struggling in all sorts of ways, well, the Spirit helps us pray when we're weak. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I'm pretty sure that everyone here at some point in their life has felt so low that they've just not quite known exactly what to pray or exactly what to say. God, by his Spirit, gives us this word for our encouragement. In those moments when we haven't known what to say, the Spirit does, because the Spirit is God. He knows our thoughts, and moreover, he knows what is best for us. And when we can't speak, he does. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So it might be that all you can do is lie on your pillow and just have thoughts of God and something that resembles something like help. That's all you can manage. Is that a powerful prayer? Well, you bet, because the Spirit is praying with words that we don't understand for our good. The Spirit helps us when we're weak. Now, that's not a reason for laziness. Actually, that's a reason for confidence. And we can never pray a wasted prayer for the Spirit intercedes for us. Thirdly, he lines up our prayers with God's will. Romans 8, again, and verses 27 to 28. And here's the best possible reason to ask boldly and ask for anything and ask confidently. For verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That means that God will never give us something that is outside his good plan. So we can ask, as I mentioned last week, we can ask, and we can ask confidently and boldly, knowing that if it is not for our good, we won't receive it. And if we haven't received it, It is better and it is for our good. The Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. He always aligns our prayers with God's will. For this is how the sentence continues, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, 
in all things, God works together for our good. It means that we can't pray a bad prayer, we can't pray a wasted prayer, rather every prayer will be heard and answered for good. And knowing that God only gives us what is good, it liberates us from knowing, well, can I ask for that thing, or should I not ask that, or have I asked in the right way? Just pray. Remember, we pray to a Father who loves to give. We pray through a Son who has brought us by his death and by his ministry to the throne of grace with the Spirit who is behind us. We can be bold and confident when we pray. Of course, knowing that God is working for our good comes, well, the sharp end is when we suffer, isn't it? Uh, When we get the cancer diagnosis or the depression doesn't lift. And this is to be of encouragement that God will never let us go. The Spirit, remember, who began a work in us, giving us new life, is the same Spirit who is the, the guarantee, the deposit. He will never let us go. He is working in us powerfully, actively, unstoppably in our prayers. We can pray. Even in the depths, he is working. And that's a great reason to keep on praying. Finally, as we finish, uh, I want to wrap up by thinking about praying to God. You might say, well, what have we been doing for the last three weeks? Well, we've been thinking about praying to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is right, because that is how God reveals himself. But we need to remember also that the three persons are one God. Is that mind-blowing? Yes, of course it is. Uh, Are we wanting to ask some questions later? Yes, I expect we will. But we've been thinking that as we pray to the one God, our prayers are coming to the Father, a Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. As we pray to the one God, all our prayers are coming through the Son who mediates all the work of God to bring it about. As we pray to the one God, we're helped, caused by the Spirit. But why do we need to know that we pray to a tri-personal God. And here's the very important point. If God wasn't tri-personal, he would not be inherently relational. Let that sink in. And I'll say that again. If God wasn't in three persons, he wouldn't be relational. You see, if there was just one person on his own, you you can't relate if you're one person on your own. But God is tri-personal in one. It means when we pray, God is bringing us into himself and sharing his relationality, if you like, with us. As we pray, we are, in an incredible way, sharing in God. It's what Jesus prays in the upper room, actually. He prays that we would be in Jesus just as Jesus is in the Father, so that by the Spirit, Jesus and the Father are with us, in us. It's in John 14. And as we come to understand our tri-personal God and prayer, we can see that they're so connected. Our God, three in one, brings us into relationship with him. And we've, we've seen that he does that powerfully and wonderfully. And of course, we want to know him better. As someone said, again, I heard recently, you can't love what you don't know. And so we want to know God in tri-persons. And of course, also, 
If you can imagine a marriage, husband and wife, they get married, and then they never spend any more of their life asking about each other. Can you imagine that? What kind of marriage would that be? Never asking, how are you? Never asking, what do you like? It'd be strange if we never have any questions about God after this. Of course, I can never, I'm so weak, I can never explain all there is to know about God in three half-hour talks. But we'll want to keep wrestling with this, and I hope this has stimulated our knowledge of God and love for him, such that we'll be wrestling on our own, and feel free to ask some questions later. But this is where we want to finish, and uh, here's a great quote from uh, a theologian of the 4th century. When I say theologian, he's a Christian, he's just like us, he knew God, and this is what he said. He said, when I think of the one, when I think of the one God, we should be illumined by the splendor of the three. And as we think of the three, we should be dazzled by one overwhelming light. And that is my prayer, that we should be dazzled by the overwhelming light that is our God. And to that end, let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have brought us into a relationship with yourself through your Son and by your Spirit. Thank you for continuing to demonstrate your love to us in hearing and answering our prayers, always and only giving us what is good. Thank you for the work of your Spirit that we thought about this morning. Thank you that he is powerfully at work in us, causing our prayers to be heard and answered. And we pray that we might grow to love you more, that we might be dazzled by your glory. And we ask all these things through Jesus, because we're your children, and we can confidently ask through him. Amen.